Spock, your ears. You're a human. To prank. I will not marry a human. I choose Califi. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton going where fun goes to die. Fun indeed, because this week we are talking about episode five of Strange New Worlds, the halfway point, Spock, a mock. Yeah, Kim, I found this one to be uh, uh, delightful. I was a little bit worried about it uh, for uh, the, the first 20 minutes where it was a lot of um, not so much putting characters in ridiculous situations and seeing, you know, funniness unfold is mostly making characters act ridiculous. And then you're supposed to laugh at those situations. I have to admit, I did not laugh out loud once, but I, I had a nice smile for at least like the, the, the final two-thirds of this uh, rather rather fun, delightful episode. And it's about time we got we got some more body swapping going on, sir. Yeah, it was the turnabout intruder callback that I've always wanted. Um, <laughs> I thought like this episode I actually did laugh. I thought there was a lot of stuff, especially involving Una and Lon, that really worked for me a lot. This was, I think, we'd been talking the last episode, I think it was, of this podcast about, like, a comedy episode on Strange New Worlds and what that could look like. And for me, this was what I really like, um, where it's kind of like that trouble with Tribbles, where maybe the scenarios are a little more broad or comedic, but, like, it's just about the characters we know navigating them, and the humor comes from there. The way that Trouble with Tribbles, a lot of the humor is Kirk being really annoyed about a really lame grain assignment. And yeah. here... All the various circumstances, it's just about the characters reacting to these things. Uh, so I, the Una and Laon stuff is actually what didn't quite work for me. Uh, I, I found much more amusement in... I, I just thought the uh, uh, performance behind the, the uh, both uh, the T'Pring actress as well as Ethan Peck as Spock, I thought both of them just traded off so well. They had clearly studied each other's mannerisms without making it look like uh, Kirk doing Turnabout Intruder. Um, <laughs> is this finally kind of the, the Turnabout Intruder um, apology episode that we've been waiting for about... Uh, <laughs> 54 years at this point i would say it was a just a little just a little more sensitively done okay okay but um, it, it was just great and even just the central conceit um i i get they have to explain it all to dum-dums by the end but the central conceit of having an alien that you're negotiating with who they're defined by uh copying other people around them i thought that was just an incredible thing i it, it's just kind of interesting to see that unfold i'm just thinking that we were deprived of them uh, of us getting to watch them negotiate with the pack leads. i think that would have been amazing that would have been amazing and that uh, that whole negotiation bit one of my favorite funny moments was just like um was a pike just suddenly turning and being like 
They sound very Vulcan all of a sudden. <laughs> Just the yeah. acknowledgement that suddenly they're like imitating the Vulcans back and forth. I thought this was a really interesting episode in that like you can look at it as just kind of a breezy hangout episode. But there was a lot here about just like looking at other people's perspectives. And you saw that in the, those negotiations, the way that Pike was able to figure out how these aliens worked and how they, they themselves mirrored the perspectives of the people they were talking to. But then also with Spock and T'Pring in the body swap scenario and having to see each other's perspective on their relationship. I thought this was the kind of episode, you could call it just breezy, but it actually had some actual ideas behind it. Well, and furthermore, I think one of the most important things we've heard about the Spock character so far, five episodes in, is this exchange that he had with Nurse Chapel in that kind of lounge towards the beginning of the episode, before there was ever the body swapping. He recounted how he had a terrifying dream that I had to fight my human side. I found that a fascinating statement because when the dream started, it was from Spock's point of view, and Spock's point of view was that he was fighting his Vulcan side. So really, you know, his point of view was him fighting a Vulcan. It's him as a human fighting a Vulcan. But in the real world, he's identifying as a Vulcan. It's kind of the masquerade, the sort of shell that he's trying to put out in front of other people, kind of like this shield against other people. And just seeing kind of the um, juxtaposition between that. And I also like the fact that you didn't need the show to kind of comment on that. It's up to what viewers to pick up on that distinction or, or not. I just found that to be a very uh, clever and fascinating thing that the writer slipped in there and that may have gone unnoticed. I thought that was really clever as well. And you can look at it and say, hey, they're doing like an Amok Time homage. Like, that's fun. But the way they kind of almost did a little bit of a nod to that episode Faces from Voyager, where B'Elanna Torres is split between the human and the Klingon side, I thought it was really interesting just to have this aspect of Spock where throughout the entirety of Star Trek, there's always been this conflict within him and that he experiences emotions, obviously being half human, far more than other Vulcans. And that's been so many of the stories we've seen, especially like, you know, young child Spock having issues with bullying growing up and what really tears at the kind of the fabric of the character throughout. And so when you have a dream sequence like that, yes, it like, I think, you know, I was talking to my sister and she's really enjoying the show, the way it kind of brings new people into the franchise and makes the stories very easy to understand so she's very much enjoying it for that but i think it communicates that concept incredibly well and i was wondering myself when he saw himself as a human which i really liked because that's that part of him he's always the least confident in throughout you know the entirety of the character's history um but it also made me think of star trek discovery of his relationship with burnham which i think you know is now an important aspect of that character and we saw that the last time we had major spock stories on star trek it was with this relationship he had with burnham and that how important her human side was to him and him seeing value in that so this is a show i'm not eager for desperate you know discovery callbacks in the future of it but i thought this was a way of kind of paying somewhat tribute to that but also acknowledging the core of the character I also got to give a shout out to Ethan Peck just in his performance. And you see how different Spock is as a human, you know, just how he's adopting more of those uh, looser kind of human characteristics in the performance Ethan Peck was giving. Also, just a, a great opportunity to showcase that guy as a stud rather than the kind of the dopey haircuts <laughs> uh, that he usually has to walk around in. And then his characteristics in which he's fully Vulcan. And it, those are different 
they're distinct from Spock, the half Vulcan, half human, and, and he's uh, he, his posture is even more ramrod. You know, like he seems like uh, just a little bit more intimidating. I thought that was great. As that sequence was unfolding, I I, I mean, obviously it was a dream, but yeah. um, <laughs> well, okay. Let me ask you this first, and I'll get to my broader point. Um, so the music was the music playing in his dream cam. <laughs> well, okay. At first, my reaction is like. I don't know, would Spock be dreaming of the events of a, you know, TOS episode in his future? But then I'm like, I don't know, maybe it's like the Vulcan equivalent of like going to a football game, where if you go to a football game, they always play the same music, so he just Mm. naturally hears the same music. Okay, I think, okay, that's a good way to rationalize it, because in my head, it's like, no, he's not hearing the music, this is all for the audience, and that actually takes me out of a dream sequence when uh, kind of the artificiality of that is revealed. There's not too many um, dream sequences I've ever seen realized on screen that uh, make me actually feel as if I'm viewing a dream. Uh, I I think Michel Gondry in uh, Eternal Sunshine, he's come the closest to accomplishing that. Um, But um, I always find David Lynch for me. Yeah, so uh, the the point I was kind of getting into, though, is when that music kicks in, uh, I, I was kind of cringing because uh, at that moment I was thinking, you know what, they, they keep kind of doing this. It, it, it's Is it an homage or is it just kind of a ripoff? And, and to me, when you have these kind of direct rips from Star Trek lore, it, it, it's kind of that member berry sort of scenario where you're just supposed to like get up and, and cheer because it, it's plucking those nostalgia chords in your memory. I just don't feel that the show has earned it yet, you know, like just a few hours into its total run you know it's fun stuff to watch but so is you know eating dessert is fun to do but you haven't necessarily eaten your broccoli yet and i think they i i just look it's one of those niggling things that i know it's bugging me i know it's not bugging like the vast majority of viewers but i think it's also kind of what separates the um super well done confident television shows versus the ones that are a little bit more um thirsty for fan approval yeah, do you think there's a line though where when you're dealing with for example what we're talking about this dream sequence with like a mock time stuff that they are paying you know tribute to like a 50 plus year old TV episode. And I do wonder if there's a point where it's more about just evoking imagery for viewers who maybe haven't watched TOS. I mean, we ourselves talking to guests to come on this podcast have met many who are like I love TNG and everything onwards, and I've, I've never watched TOS. And I just wonder how much of this show's kind of intent on reusing some of these, you know, scenes or concepts is to kind of keep that mythology ingrained and these images ingrained as part of Star Trek going forward. So that when those new viewers might go back and rewatch or watch for the first time the original series, um, they're be, uh, being presented with concepts or scenarios that are already familiar to them. That for sure, but I mean, maybe they don't go back and it's just about in the future of Star Trek, they can kind of nod back to things like this and people kind of understand it because I do think there is, and I don't know what the generational line is. I do think at a certain point, asking people to be familiar with like a 1960s TV show suddenly becomes maybe a bridge too far. But then I like, I I guess you're asking like what what you're getting as you want these images to remain within kind of the the collective history of Hmm. uh, viewers, you know, even if the uh, hardcore viewers of the original series, let's, let's be honest, they're they're dying off uh, more than they're gaining viewers at this point. I think it's fair to say. Um, 
I get it, but it's not like I don't know. Did Matlock feature tons of like uh, <laughs> shoutouts to like uh, the Mayberry Township? You know, like I don't think so. It's it, someone it is what didn't it is. watch season six of Matlock. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, look, I, I went away for a while. I came back for season seven, eight, nine. Thank you very much. But, yeah, um, it's it, it's one of those things where it's like. I, I do wonder, like, when a franchise like this has been going this long, how much they need to constantly kind of bring back some of that classic iconography so people even know what it is. Like, the way that even, like, something like Skyfall is bringing back the classic Aston Martin because there's probably 13-year-olds who don't know, you know, the movie Goldfinger. Well, okay, I don't have an issue with the Aston Martin, like, callback there. And just like I don't have an issue with, you know, Pike walking around in that amazing green tunic that we saw uh, Kirk rock. Like, that is not one of those kinds of uh, callbacks that I have an issue with. It's more kind of the the very blatant stuff that they're, like, that seems like more of the memberberry stuff to me. And that's kind of, it, it just irks me. I know it might. It's very likely just my own particularly uh, uh, viewing habits or what I appreciate from from good television. But I just it just shows kind of a lack of confidence about being able to create and do your own things without having to rely on the uh, you know eight hundred episodes of Star Trek that came before it to ensure that you get like kind of like a, a, a great moment. You want to sell a moment. What better way to do it than to um, call back to some of the most iconic stuff? Because, look, um, when I hear um, uh, Boimler talk about Trip Tucker Sprinkles, like, <laughs> it, it, to me, I, I don't think as if, like, uh, millions of Star Trek fans are jumping out of their seats at, like, a little kind of throwaway mention about a uh, one of the less beloved Star Trek series with, like, a, still a very uh, strong contingent of fans, you know. Like, but, you know, I it, it's just one of those things I'm just like, kind of do your own thing first. You know, create your own universe first, and then let's maybe do more of these more blatant um, callbacks when we're getting into the latter seasons, when I think you've earned it. I just don't think the show has earned it at this point. It's such an issue or, you know, a sticking point for a lot of people with just not just TV, but like modern franchise storytelling, where so much of it is kind of this this loop of references and then homages, you know, just being recycled over and over. And it's in Star Trek. It's in I reference James Bond. It's in Marvel stuff. It's so omnipresent now. I mean, you, we watched Top Gun 2. We had a great time with Top Gun 2. It is wall-to-wall references to the original Top Gun. And it's this type of storytelling now that I feel like it often just comes down to an individual as to whether it's too far or acceptable. Like, why was Top Gun 2 fine with me but like i cringed through half of ghostbusters afterlife who knows or jurassic world yeah there's another one yeah that drove me nuts half the time well also there another one we'll be talking about it uh, i think later on with uh orbi cam nobi uh our mm-hmm. review uh of obi-wan kenobi the, the first half of that season as well is very funny that the uh, first half of uh, the latest star trek and the latest star wars both lining up the same week though but i i know what you're saying look I, I, I don't want to dismiss anybody who appreciates, like, uh, getting this very direct Amok Time homage, you know. Uh, it, it works for you. Uh, it's just something that I feel is a little cheap. That Just a yeah. kind of a, a cheap motif that they can go to uh, just to kind of, uh, you know, uh, squeeze those endorphins from uh, viewers and, I don't know, get, get them to, you know, talk about it on social media or whatever. 
And I do feel like they can, in the future, I hope, contribute to Vulcan mythology the way that, like, the Kirshara arc did in Enterprise. Yeah. And Enterprise, in that season four, was doing a lot of, you know, homages to original series stuff. Um, but they managed to create a Vulcan arc that actually introduced new concepts and ideas where it didn't feel like they had to kind of trot out greatest hits. So, fingers crossed, going forward, we get more Vulcan stories like that. But I guess this one I'm much more forgiving because I felt like just... In terms of the storytelling going in within that dream sequence, it really landed with me and felt like it was, I don't know, tackling another, you know, we've seen this angle of Spock tackled again and again and again, but doing it in a way that I've never quite seen before. So I found that so interesting. And look, uh, speaking of things that uh, we've seen again and again and again, but done in a way we haven't seen before, uh, the body swapping uh, conceit here. I thought it was great because you have like two partners trying to better understand each other uh, from this perspective, you know, even stuff like to bring in Spock's body saying, I know how a door works. Like that legit, <laughs> like that was funny right there, you know, or, uh, you know, Spock, I do not like hijinks. It's like, <laughs> like those kinds of things were, were pretty awesome. I just want more extended scenes of to bring in Spock and Pike in the room. Because there's something about this like yes. third wheel scenario I find consistently hilarious, and Anson Mount is just perfect at underplaying the comedy of these encounters. Now, who's the third wheel in this circumstance, though? <laughs> That's an excellent question. <laughs> well, if it were um, Kirk instead of Pike, I would say Tupring is the third wheel. But with Pike, I don't know. Like that relationship is different, and I don't know that I have like. I, I wouldn't say it's underwritten. Like, I don't have a sense of this, you know, being an unconvincing relationship between Spock and Pike. I just don't know long-term how much it all means yet. Yeah, look, I, well, again, we're five hours into it, you know. Um, yeah. m- maybe you could argue, like, eight or nine hours if you count the Discovery stuff as well. But it's, we're very, very early on into... I, I don't even think the writers have quite fleshed out where exactly this relationship is going to go. And I, I don't think... Like, I don't think you need, like, a giant Bible uh, for every single TV series, like, that intricately maps out the exact uh, idea for any given, like... Uh, arc or whatever i like I, i'm more of a person like have kind of broad strokes in mind and be willing to go on detours if something's working or something's not and look i don't know maybe this becomes more of a uh, father-son relationship in the coming seasons maybe it's just as jovial as you would find with uh kirk and uh, uh spock you know like i, I i'm down to explore whatever this relationship means and i don't know captain dad still rocking it today uh just with his diplomacy <laughs> and um uh, just him kind of figuring things out as kind of that diplomat there and it's something that um just made me think a lot of picard and i'm not talking yeah. about uh, uh the season <laughs> of uh, star trek here but i'm talking about like tng era like prime picard you know yeah the romgovians didn't try to run him down in a car at some point <laughs> I still can't believe we had a villain uh, use a Tesla as a, as a weapon uh, in an uh, episode of Star Trek. Like this is like um, it looked like something from Dynasty. <laughs> Who ran down Picard or did JL? Say, yeah. Who ran down JL? <laughs> Sorry, did I say Dynasty? I meant die nasty. <laughs> I guess Dallas would also apply with the reference I'm making. Um, shows that I've never seen, but I somehow am referencing. I guess. Well, <laughs> have you um, seen, have you ever seen Dynasty? Um, I've seen Dallas, but I don't. Yeah, I think I like my parents. I remember they had like I don't know the uh, the opening credits on. I don't think my parents were Dynasty watchers. They watched Dallas. They watched L.A. Law. 
Oh, that's yeah. the much as I can kind of remember from that, you know, late 80s era myself. Yeah, LA Law and uh, MASH in my house. But yeah, uh, we, were, we were a MASH household. Right, right. But uh, I thought, like, I, I'm finding it very interesting how they're tackling the character of T'Pring. Because when you look at T'Pring in a mock time, don't know that it's the most um, three-dimensional of characters <laughs> as depicted in that episode. And I'm liking the way that they're setting this character up where both of the characters are very sympathetic in the state of this relationship. And we know if you're someone who's you know watched the original series, you know this relationship goes to <laughs> somewhat dark places ultimately. And I'm finding it more and more interesting how the show is finding ways to make her point of view very sympathetic. Oh, like how many more uh, adventures like this will that couple mm. have to go on? You know, but at a certain point, you kind of wonder, why doesn't she just break it off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess Vulcans are logical, but love isn't. <laughs> True, yeah. Uh, so, Cam, <laughs> speaking of which, after uh, making Vulcan love, uh, are, are the openings of Golden Solar Sails, is that the new whole uh, uh, train through the uh, the tunnel sort of a motif that they use in cinema? Oh, um Hmm, because the, what what yeah. followed though was the sequence in which uh, Nurse Chapel seems to show an interest in Ortegas. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, was it with Ortegas? I thought it was with Spock. That's interesting. I my interpretation is like uh, she was showing interest in or Ortegas in that moment. Not interesting. I need yeah. to go back and watch that because my sense was because throughout the episode, so much of her time had been spent with Spock talking about relationships. And we saw with uh, Chapel that someone who is somewhat aloof in relationships, um, and when we saw her date, seemed more interested in something more, she really retracted. And it was almost like when she saw Spock, she was almost like drawn to something that was very similar to herself, someone who's very aloof, which to me, like, feels very in keeping with the history of that character. Okay. So I don't know. That's the way I read it. But I, I think the Ortegas thing could be on the table as well. Well, I like I, I just look at how she was looking directly at Ortegas with thirsty eyes. And I don't think she was pretending Ortegas was Spock in that moment. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, I guess we'll find out in, uh, I'm sure, coming episodes where this goes. But I think, like, you know, with the Chapel character, there's so much they can do with her. And it would seem somewhat narrow if you just go off the, you know, the original series. But I'm really thinking, like, Jess Bush is really good as this character, and we haven't gotten a lot of her, but episodes like this make me very, very intrigued to see the development of her and some of the other relationships she has on the show, because I'm really enjoying what they're doing with uh, La'an and Una, and I'd like to see more with some of um, Chapel's relationships. Uh, Cam, would you ever play Enterprise Bingo? Um, You know what? Honestly, when they were doing some of those things like the uh, bubble gum through the transporter, um, the turbo lift yelling at the same time, I'm like, these are like really fun, um, observational, humorous um, kind of approaches to Star Trek canon that I'm sure fans have argued about, but I thought were really fun to see. So yeah, if that's what uh, Enterprise Bingo is, sure, sign me up. Um, would Captain Pike really be okay with them shooting phasers at each other? Probably like, not. What the hell? <laughs> well, uh, they were being a little dangerous, you know. You turn them all the way down, and I guess they weren't. I don't think they were telling Pike. Well, I, I you'd certainly hope that they turned them all the way down. Like, what if somebody like <laughs> uh, accidentally turned it all the way up? Yeah, the overload. Didn't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, I, I, here's my thing. I think the, uh, the the reason Una won the uh, Turbo Lift Challenge, though, my guess is that the, the computer automatically defers to whoever the senior officer is. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a definitely yeah. an excellent hypothesis. Oh. Also, did you know that uh, Chief Kyle is so mean? I hope this becomes a running joke of always <laughs> playing him as you know, maybe a little milk toast or a little just pleasant and have other characters acknowledge how strict and mean he is. Um, it's kind of like, it reminded me a little bit of Lower Decks where you had um, um, Billups and um, uh, and uh, Rutherford fawning over like how amazing Billups was. And then all we're seeing is this man just like sitting there eating soup. And I think that's the sort of thing they should do with Kyle. Just keep acknowledging this character's temper and just keep portraying him as very pleasant. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to watch those ensigns uh, micro-clean the transporter pads only to find mounds of gum uh, stuck in there. <laughs> that whole thing with, like, the cadets running around playing Enterprise Bingo, like, you would have never seen that on something like the original series. It almost feels a little bit like some of that Lower Decks influence of finding organic ways to work in kind of fun with the concept of Lower Decks characters. Um I'm hoping they could do more with that because it feels like the Pike ship has the energy of the Kirk ship in that it's kind of like a place where anything can kind of happen and there's kind of fun going on all the time. It's not like the, uh, you know, the Picard Enterprise where everyone's kind of quietly strolling around hallways. Yeah, well, instead, the last time the uh, Enterprise D was emptied out like that, uh, we had the Die Hard homage episode of Starship Mine and the uh, the Baryon array. You know that, that that's not wacky hijinks there. No, no, not at all, not at all. I'm I'm interested to see what they do with the Laan Una relationship because I'm finding it really fun the way they play off each other. And Laan is a character who often can come across as very serious in scenes and the way they give her kind of sly looks and stuff in her more friendly banter with Una, I think is really making that character feel even more dynamic. Yeah. Uh, You know, it it kind of felt like I I was talking about it last week, how like, why do all of these episodes so far have to be existential in nature? And it was nice to just kind of have this lower stakes episode, you know, where it's not life or death every moment of the episode, you know, and uh, we do kind of, and there's just like touching moments, you know, where we have Spock telling to Pring, look, in Starfleet, I'm accepted for who I am, you know, half Vulcan, half human. And in my head, I'm like, well, wait until you meet Dr. McCoy in a few years, sir. (laughs) True. Although he was also in this episode pointing out like how um, easy or whatever fun it is to like rib humans back. And I was like, oh, of course, because obviously Spock is going to be um, poking fun at McCoy uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And it works. It's like uh, it, it, McCoy falls for it all the time, too. Like, come on, bro. Oh, yeah. McCoy always takes the bait. And I do think they're having a lot of fun with Spock dialogue. That doesn't feel like it's turning the character into like a parody or like almost like a spoof character. I liked when, you know, Pike was just like, get out of town. And Spock's just like. We are not in a town. Like, the way they yeah. can have him <laughs> deliver lines like that, they're not delivered in, like, a broadly silly way. It's like Ethan Peck just nails them. When I was watching, like, Ethan Peck in this episode but the last few, I was reminded of, like, um, Roger Ebert talking about Pierce Brosnan in, like, his second, third Bond movie. And I remember when he talked about him in Goldeneye, he was like, I-, I-, I don't know about this guy. He doesn't really seem to have it so much. And I think... For myself, I sometimes struggled with him a little bit on Discovery. I liked him a lot, but it was like, I don't know, is this like 
the perfect Spock actor? I don't know. I guess he's the one we've got. And now I feel like Roger Ebert saying, I believe he actually said, Brosnan can have the role as long as he wants it when he got to like the second, third movie. That's kind of how I feel about Ethan Peck at this point. I am yeah. more than content for him to be the, you know, steward of Spock as long as he wants. If he wants to do it for another 30 years or whatever, go nuts. Even as the, uh, we do the uh, the child Spock spinoff series. <laughs> He's like 65 years old. <laughs> well, they yeah. can de-age him at that point. That's true. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, one of the lines uh, that annoyed me a lot, uh, this is coming from the jerky Vulcan guy playing 3D chess, is mm. when he exclaimed, humans evolved from apes, did they not? And I wanted to scream, no, they did not. Um, humans and, ev- and apes evolved from a common ancestor that, that split off and one branch became humans and one branch evolved into apes. And it's, it's one of those uh, things. And like, Star Trek has a long history of not really understanding the nature of evolution. You don't, uh, whether you think of an episode like Threshold or Genesis, uh, how come nobody caught that? Because A, it's a very illogical line for a Vulcan to say if still his ultimate goal was just to insult them. It still wasn't a logical joke, and that's what annoys me. Hmm. He was like a Vulcan criminal of some sort. Um, maybe he just doesn't really know. Maybe he's confused Didn't do himself. well in school. Maybe, maybe. Like, maybe that's the source of his problems. We don't really know. That was the one thing I felt like, for me, that didn't quite work as well, was that, like, just the resolution to this, you know, logical criminal um, subplot... I felt like the Tapring negotiation stuff paid off really nicely. I'm not sure that I thought Spock punching out the um, criminal was like the perfect button on that story. Well, yeah, I know. I, I think they kind of uh, a, a little short on time at that point, especially since uh, they'd spent so much time setting up uh, uh, Mabenga's uh, fly fishing cap. You know? <laughs> Ken, that is my that is my cosplay at uh, the next Star Trek convention right there. <laughs> would Spock punch someone out though versus like I don't know nerve pinch have we ever seen Spock just like punch someone out like that like I I don't I can't think of anything offhand I'm sure he probably like was throwing punches at Khan in Into Darkness and I think Spock was doing you know the double fisted hammer thing they used to do on the original series I think he did that maybe a couple times but, but did he th- this was a sucker punch Exactly. I've never seen Spock do like a sucker punch like that. That's why I thought like the nerve pinch would be probably funnier. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Cam, before we get on to uh, Orbi One Camnobi, uh, <laughs> any final thoughts on Spock Amok? Well, um, I thought this episode was a lot of fun and I thought it did a really good job just shifting up the energy from, you know, the previous week, which was a very intense episode. Like, I would say, looking at Strange New Worlds now, at the halfway point of season one, none of these episodes have felt like kind of the same energy, which I'm really enjoying. It doesn't feel like, you know, obviously Picard is more serialized, but it's like, it gets a little old when you're kind of getting the same tone every single week. And I've really enjoyed how Strange New Worlds, you know, not every episode has worked on the same level for me, but like... Every week I'm enjoying tuning in to see what I'm getting. But it should not have taken them five years to figure this out when they had like 45 years of this sort of, uh, or I should have said uh, 50 years by the time that Discovery premiered, uh, of that knowledge behind them. You know, like what works for Star Trek and having these monolithic in tone 
serialized convoluted storylines it's just like did they honestly think that was really what star trek had been begging for well was it just insecurity of that with the berman era kind of just you know had <laughs> diminishing viewers as it kept going and many people just felt it was exhausted by the time enterprise went off the air so when they went to like revive it did they just look at those past series and be like they just ran themselves into the ground. People were tired of episodic stories. We've got to shake it up and do something new. But ultimately, like the execution of what they wanted to do that was new didn't really work. But was it just like they were terrified of that old model? I think what happened is you had a man with a vision, uh, Brian uh, Fuller, come in. And there was a lot of headbutting uh, on the side of the executives and the creatives. And the man with the vision, the man who is really meant to shepherd Star Trek, uh, he was ousted. And you got something that was just this goopy pile of I don't know what. You know, and like there's a lot of stuff in season one of Discovery that I liked, but that is a very messy season of storytelling. Same with season two of Discovery. You know, a lot of stuff I liked, but a lot of stuff going behind the scenes that indicated that uh, they had to kind of just make things up on the fly. You talk to Brian Fuller, and like like I said, he's more of the kind of, like, he has a plan, he has a vision. He's more of the kind of the broad strokes kind of guy based on the other series of his that I, I've really enjoyed. And when you don't have that, it's just, it looks like the best TV that's out there is auteur-driven television. This is not coming from auteurs. Uh, it's coming from, what, like, how many cooks in the kitchen at this point? Like, this kind of era of Star Trek? And, and, and that's kind of a these sort of serialized stories don't really lend themselves to that. Yeah, just um, count the number of producers and exec producers on um, these new Star Trek shows, and that's kind of the uh, signal for people maybe who don't read all this production behind-the-scenes stuff. When you see that many producers, that is very curious and not something that's that common. Um, and I think, like, one thing with the Brian Fuller approach that was interesting was, you know, he had, I believe, talked about how he wanted it to be more of an anthology series, and you could hop around season to season to do different things the way that, like, you know, the Fargo TV show or something or True Detective do. And I think at the time, I remember having a little bit of a, like, kind of like, ooh, I don't know. Like, I like my crews consistently through multiple seasons and growing with them. That's just something I guess I'm just used to. So I was falling back on the familiar. But it's something where I now go, like, in a way that would have delivered what I'm liking about Strange New Worlds, which would be he could do kind of the what people are really enjoying serialized tv do their whatever 10 or 15 episode season tell a specific story whatever the you know number one story was going to be originally in his mind and then jump somewhere else and do something completely different for a second season so you're kind of getting the diversity of storytelling of star trek while also giving people more of that serialized approach that has become more you know commonplace and enjoyed yeah, but there's a way to do serialized storytelling that actually works, and it's not convoluted. And I just point to, you know, season two of Star Trek Picard, and I point to it because it just wrapped. But that, that's it was terrible, terrible when it comes to serialized storytelling, where you just you're stalling for episodes on end, and also episodes kind of conclude very arbitrarily, and it's all because their idea is like, oh, it's all just part of one large movie we're making a 10-hour movie and I, they can't use that 10-hour movie excuse when like half the episodes are like 34 minutes long it's more like we're making a six-hour long movie well i often now do the like the mental math 
when I'm sitting down to watch something like Picard or Moon Knight or some of these other uh, mediocre genre shows that I'm watching. And I will like figure out time-wise how long this actually was and then try to figure out cuts you could make to get it down to like two and a half hours. And yeah. it's always fun how it could actually be quite easily done with a number of these which lends very poor um, support for them being these extended chunk-by-chunk stories. Well, that's just it. When we get to the end of season one of Strange New Worlds, because it's so episodic in nature and because it's character-based, we're not going to be like, you know what? You could have scrapped this B story in episode seven. And you're like, no, that that wouldn't make any sense because that takes away from the full story that's being told within that one episode there you know so that that's why that just doesn't really work when <laughs> when you've taken this model and also when i watch like well uh like well-made serialized dramas i don't have an easy time thinking in my head like oh you could definitely cut this out or that out or that went nowhere i'm just like no you can't really cut anything out because it all adds up to something it's all meaningful it, and you're not just kind of making it up and making the uh, characters, you know, kind of uh, spin plates. And, um, you know, it, it's like just the whole Raffi and Seven stuff. It's just them wandering around L.A. bickering for half the season. And it's like, really? This is a, you, you get Jerry Ryan back uh, for the first time in 20 years and th- as a main character. And this is what you're doing with her. It's, it's just like, yikes. But also that you can say, oh, it's a 10 hour movie. But you know what? When you sit down and watch a movie and there's a relationship at the core of a movie, they communicate that relationship and show it to you. And somehow these 10 hour movies that they've been cranking out on, you know, Picard and also Discovery is them telling you about relationships without ever showing them. It's like (laughs) you have you have more time than your standard movie and they can't make that happen. It's head scratching. Well, it's like we've been debating for how many seasons whether or not Burnham and Tilly are actually friends. Like, yeah. they they keep saying they're friends, but we haven't really seen much evidence that they are. Not no. not at least not really since season one, maybe season two. No, no, I, it's I don't know. I we go down the Discovery Picard well, but it's hard not to when you're watching a show like I think Strange New Worlds, which feels very confident in itself, and is in a single episode just this episode alone showing multiple relationships developing, you know, whether it is the Chapel or Tegas, whether it is the, you know, Spock and Chapel, whether it's Lon and Una, it's all there. And it's not like the show had to make huge concessions to make all of this happen in one hour. Yeah. Uh, I'll just shout out Hammer. I'm guessing uh, he was not on shore leave because that man never leaves the engine room. No, I mean, if Una is um, where fun goes to die, what is Hammer? Well, he's Fun's funeral. You know, she just mm. got those uh, mixed up. That's the problem there. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a good call. Good call. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, Cam, maybe I can uh, segue on to uh, Obi-Wan here in that, uh, you know, we, we uh-huh. find a man, <laughs> an older man who we haven't seen in, oh, I don't know, 20 years. And he's not quite himself anymore. And he's lost touch with those really closest to him in his life and He's really just a shell of a former self. And, you know, well, enough about season one of uh, Star Trek Picard Cam. I, I want to talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi here. Yeah. Um, I, I just like I, I, I found episode one, like far more engaging than the subsequent two. Uh, in, in, you are finding Obi-Wan in like this, <laughs> this 
a totally acceptable, despondent way of life. Like, the man must be miserable for the last 10 years, and I totally buy it. You know, it, it, it makes sense to me. And then we just kind of give him a cute little adventure with Leia. And it's uh-huh. not like I, I have anything against Leia. I'm just like, whoa, okay. Like, it just seems kind of arbitrary. Keep things going. And it's like, yeah, we kind of went there with um, uh, Grogu already. And it's just like, my, my feeling so far with Obi-Wan is like, yeah, it's serviceable. It's not really blowing me away, though, at this point. I would say this show has made me appreciate Grogu far, far more than I already did. And for one specific <laughs> reason, Grogu does not talk. Yeah. And I am listening to a lot of 10-year-old actress being given dialogue written by 40-year-old adults. And it is painful. It's a lot of dialogue that no 10-year-old would have the perspective to be able to say. And you can say, oh, Leia's Force-sensitive. I don't care. It comes across as just like cringeworthy, I find, to listen to. And I am kind of stunned by this show because like with star wars one of the like fundamental things i think you kind of have to deliver with star wars is that you know i mean obviously effects are a huge part of it visuals are a huge aspect of star wars and generally like a high speed kind of sense of energy and this show doesn't have any of these things i watched like episode two of this show and it looked like it was shot on like the um the sets from that star trek fan film we saw in trekkies 2 I was like, this looks so unbelievably cheap and phony that when I was finished the episode, I was concerned that my motion blurring on my TV had somehow reactivated. (laughs) And so I turned on Empire Strikes Back to double check that it looked okay. And then I went to an episode of The Mandalorian and I was like, okay, well, those look fine. So clearly this Obi-Wan show just looks like trash. And I am stunned at how that's even possible, especially like I didn't really care for Book of Boba Fett, but it at least visually looked pretty good. Yeah, okay. I, it might be a TV thing. I didn't, I didn't quite pick that up uh, when I was watching uh, uh, episode two uh, or chapter two of Obi-Wan, uh, just with regards to the uh, city looking uh, that bad. Um, for me, I kept getting stuck on story things, you know, oh, with yeah. like Kamel Nanjiani, you know, coming to the rescue. And I remember my girlfriend turned to me and she's like, why did he want to do that? I was like, to redeem himself. She was like, why? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it just, it's just characters doing things for reasons I don't quite understand. And like, that's kind of the, I mean, for plot uh, points, but I'm just kind of like, eh. it, it, it just seems so kind of provincial in, in nature when it comes to storytelling that you just kind of leaning on this sort of stuff to fix your problems within the episode. You know, there, there's kind of some cute things, some nods going on here or there. This just really isn't what I, I, I was hoping for when they said, yo, we're going to scrap the scripts for Obi-Wan because we're not satisfied with the quality. We're going to rewrite everything and then we'll go to production. We're going to do this right. And so far, halfway through, I'm like, I wonder what those first batch of scripts looked like. Yeah, they must have been pretty painful because I think, like, bringing... Obi-Wan back is compelling. I think Ewan McGregor got such a raw deal with those prequels where like he was really good playing Obi-Wan Kenobi and I think left a lot of fans, even ones, you know, at the time I was more positive on the prequels than I feel now, but even then it was like he was better than that. Like I think we really could have had something special just given his performance and when they announced they were going to bring him back for a show, I'm like... On one hand, I'm not that big on these like endless Star Wars prequels we keep getting. I liked Rogue One, but like 
Han, you know, uh, the, our solo, I should say, was um, fine, but like, why did it? Why does it exist? And so I was like, well, okay, if Obi Wan can deliver something I care about, awesome. And I watched this story, and it just like Episode One, I did enjoy. I liked kind of the the solemn life Obi Wan was leading. I thought like they were getting some genuine dramatic depth out of that character. And then like it had that scene of at the end where you had Leia being kidnapped and we find out that's the pit, you know, the whole launch of this mission. I'm like, this feels incredibly un- unimaginative. Like yeah. this is the story of Obi-Wan is going to rescue Leia, you know, like he does later in a new hope, like how, how unbelievably creative of them to come up with that. And technical stuff would wear on me, like just how badly directed some of the action was and whatever. But like, it just feels like a show that has absolutely no drama whatsoever. And I watched like the confrontation of Obi-Wan and Darth Vader after Anakin has been scarred and, you know, the, the Mustafar system and all that sort of stuff. And it is just dramatically flat as can be. I like yeah. some of the horror Darth Vader imagery, but like, you know, when he's just walking through that town and everyone just goes still, like I thought horror movie filmmaking wise, effective stuff. Darth Vader is just a character who's just naturally terrifying. So if you can get that across, it'll really work. But like, this is supposed to be a dramatic, you know, high point probably for this season. And yikes. Uh, That confrontation totally fell flat for me. But I I do like that they didn't exactly neuter Darth Vader. Like, he's (laughs) literally just choking people out as he walked by, you know, just as he would. And, you know, it's just kind of the the show, despite bringing in you know kind of high level acting talent like Flea, it's like, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. It Classic feels Flea. as if you know you and McGregor is just kind of being underserved, and also just by the script, you know, like I I don't know who's dumber, you know, Obi Wan or the stormtrooper when Obi Wan huh. is sitting in the back of this pickup and he literally calls Leia, hey Leia. Oh. I mean, uh, Luma and <laughs> the stormtroopers are like, did you just call her Leia? Uh, her mom's name was Leia. Oops. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, I couldn't decide who was dumber in this situation. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, it's like this kind of writing. I'm like, oh, like, oh, I, I mean, I, I guess the stormtroopers were playing along, but they ended up dead by the end when uh, CGI pig boy, or no, I guess it was half practical, half CG pig boy, uh, took him uh, to the uh, the laser gate. But I don't know, just some of the stuff. I'm just like, hey, okay, I, I, I'm having the same questions I, I was having when I was watching Star Trek Picard. It's just like, you've got this iconic character played by an amazing actor, and this is a story you came up with to bring them back for. Like, really? This? You know, like, you could do better, people. Yeah, um, I was going to say, they probably should have CG'd the mouth of Pig Boy, because, boy, was that mouth not matching any of the words coming out of his mouth. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. He's got I a mean, universal translator, right? I, I guess so. But the, um, you know, these this group of um, yeah, wannabe Sith, I guess, that are or fallen Sith or, or whatever. The Inquisitors. That are, yeah, the Inquisitors, thank you, that are, like, hunting him. I know that's a popular aspect of whether it's an animated show or just expanded Star Wars canon. I'm not 100% sure, but it's a cool concept. And I think like the sort of thing that probably could have been a really interesting driving force for a season of Obi-Wan. And I'm just like watching scenes of these actors playing these Inquisitors. And I'm like, it's not, people are often hard on actors. And I've seen, you know, obviously people have been very hard on one particular actor on the show. Very racist fans have been doing that. 
so often I find, putting aside that particular example, people are very hard on actors in shows where they are being given bad dialogue and it's not working. And it's like, what do they possibly do? I'm watching Sung Kang, a man who is unbelievably charismatic in that Fast series. And I'm like, why did they hire this guy? Like, what was the point? Well, I, I, I like, I kind of could have predicted as I was watching uh, the first two episodes uh, where they premiered that the uh, the Riva character, yeah, uh, it was not working. Yeah. And I, I, it's unfortunate that I could predict it was gonna involve a lot of like uh, basement dwelling racists uh, that don't have lives, like attacking the actress. And I, I, uh, it's so unfair. But I knew that character wasn't very good, and she was not benefiting from uh, either good direction or good uh, scripts. And I'm just like, oof, oof, like this is this is kind of brutal. Like I, I, I can kind of forgive Sun Kang, and like at least he's caked in all that makeup and costuming. He, he can at least hide behind that. But Cam, like th- this Inquisitor stuff is not, it's, it ain't working for me. No, like it feels incredibly just like superficial. It doesn't feel like, you know, like a good Star Trek story will introduce like a concept and actually explore it. This feels like it's being presented in a very just unimaginative flat way. They're basically just cookie cutter villains, really. And uh, okay. And I think it's in Star Wars in particular, it's very tough, I think, to tell these stories with mediocre villains because the history of villains on this franchise have been so strong. You know, whether it's Emperor, Darth Vader, um, Darth Maul, Grievous, all these like iconic villains. And when you throw someone in there who doesn't feel in kind of the, the batting category of someone like an Obi-Wan, it doesn't feel like a challenge for that character. That's tough to overcome. Yeah. Uh, so, Cam, do you think Obi-Wan is going to succeed? Do you think he's going to be able to get Leia, Leia back to Alderaan? <laughs> I th- well, and, yeah, I mean... It's one of those things. Do you think he'll where... survive his next <laughs> confrontation with Darth Vader? Yeah, I feel like they're also poking a lot of holes in the uh, reunion of Darth Vader and Obi Wan in A New Hope, <laughs> where it's like, ah, oh, that's a voice I haven't heard in a long time. It's like, well, it's been that long. I guess it'll be about what eight years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can make an argument that's that, that's a that's a while, you know. Yeah, sure, it's it's a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, well, it's like when you watch you know, stories, say like the movie Titanic. We all know the Titanic's going to sink. How does James Cameron inject drama into that? He does it very well through characters. And in a scenario like this, we know Obi-Wan is going to go back into hiding on Tatooine. Leia will go back to Alderaan. Darth Vader is going to continue on as, you know, running the Empire um, with the Emperor. But like, you need to just, in terms of your character stories or your, you know, overall narrative, inject drama and find ways to make it feel tense where you don't know what the outcome could be just for something or someone but that doesn't feel the case with obi-wan well now that it's confirmed that he's alive uh why doesn't anybody go do like a, a google search for anybody with the last name uh kenobi you know um in the eight years until they finally meet up with him why did the um stormtroopers that got into the back of that truck not have an idea of what the jedi they're looking for actually looks like yeah, or I'm sure there must be photos of what the Imperial Senator's princess daughter looks like as well. Well, you know, in the Old West, <laughs> they had photos that they would put up with wanted signs. Yes, yes. Um, it may be an artist's rendering, but they had a sense of what people look like. How is it 
on a Star Wars show where there's a lot of technology. These stormtroopers who are just, what, wandering around a mining facility looking for, like, a little girl and a Jedi don't have even the vaguest sense of what these people look like. Well, in all fairness, he is a master of disguise, you know. Mm. He's walking around in that robe. It's... <laughs> no Jedi would ever walk around in a, a robe where you could kind of put a hood on or anything. like That, that would never happen, Cam. I began to think about the robes because that's about um, how engaged I was with the storytelling of Obi-Wan. But I'm like, <laughs> when we go back to A New Hope and they introduce Obi-Wan and he's wearing, you know, the robes when Luke encounters him. Is he wearing the robes because he's a Jedi or because he's like someone just living in the barren wastes wearing robes? Well, you go back to uh, The Phantom Menace. He's uh -huh. wearing robes there. You know, so I that's what Jedi's, Jedi's wear, right? But were the robes applied to all Jedi's because he was wearing robes in the desert at the start of A New Hope? But like, you mean, like, when they go back and make the prequels, then yeah. they decide, yeah, all the Jedi. Yeah, I, I think that's what happened, yes. Yeah, because it's the sort of thing where they're saying, we're looking for a Jedi when this man is wearing very clear Jedi robes, but... Uh, he should have dude, he should have done I, I'll problem solved he puts Leia in an R2 model she can just like uh, remote control herself around and he's walking around in like with a helmet on yeah problem solved that that's a disguise right there yeah it would have worked um I don't know like even like the whole obi-wan kind of this broken Jedi who doesn't you know he's not connected to the force. We see him constantly trying to summon Qui-Gon Jinn, so I think we can expect a Liam Neeson cameo probably in episode six or something like that, or five. But, like, we saw throughout all these various battle scenes, he kept pulling out a blaster. And clearly this was someone who had rejected, you know, the lightsaber and was uncomfortable using it. But then when you have the moment where he pulls that out opposite Vader, there's, like, no drama to it whatsoever. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. Pull out the old lightsaber, well, I guess. I did like the moment when, like, like you could just tell that obi-wan is about to puke when he kind of sensed vader's presence like that moment yeah. there that did work for me yeah it's weird where it's like i would say this is just like a thoroughly mediocre show and it just doesn't to me meet anywhere close the bar that i think the mandalorian set for star wars tv shows um but like you can kind of still just inject moments that work and that's largely because ewan mcgregor is a really fantastic actor and some of the iconography like darth vader will always be effective on screen well, I'll tell you this, like, uh, three episodes into Mando, season one, I, I wasn't sold on the show, though. Like, I thought one episode would be strong, the next one would be a little meh, next episode would be good, the episode, yeah, like, I, I would seesaw on it throughout the season. By the time I got to the end of the season, I was all in. I was like, okay, I get what they're doing, and when I rewatched that first season, I was like, okay, I, I, I'm all in, I'm enjoying what's going on here. Do you think there's a possibility that by the time we get to the end of the season... The, the, the show, it, it makes way more cohesive sense. Or are all those little nitpicks that we're pointing out, is it just more indicative of kind of a larger issue and that the, that the quality is really just not going to be able to catch up? I don't think the quality is going to catch up. And I think because this show is much more serialized than um, even Mandalorian is, that this, we're at the halfway point. I think this is the story we're going to get. And if they make an Obi-Wan season two, maybe something different can happen there. I I know that like 
putting aside Darth Vader is like impossible for them. The iconography of Star Wars is something they want to keep strip mining because it sells a lot of merchandise and all that theme parks, all that sort of thing. But it, watching this show and what it is, I'm just like, maybe they should have just invented an entire new type of Obi-Wan adventure that was just delving into new things. Uh, you could work in the Inquisitors and all that stuff, but just... I don't know that this child Leia and Darth Vader confrontation stuff is something that was needed. Okay, well, here's my pitch for Obi-Wan Season 2. Obi-Wan must rescue Wedge Antilles as a younger version of himself. <laughs> He's, like, protecting multiple children, like every child who's in the Rogue One squadron. <laughs> he really needs to make up for the death of those younglings, you know. <laughs> I will say this. I did like Joel Edgerton coming back just to be, like, kind of mean. <laughs> that like, was kind of fun. Please, please F off. Like, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, alrighty, I guess uh, we'll be back next week with more uh, Strange New World thoughts, uh, episode six, as well as more Obi Wan thoughts. And um, hey, Cam, you know it wouldn't be subspace podcast if there wasn't some sort of legacy series uh, we could crap on. And I'm I'm so glad it's not Star Trek uh, right now. It uh, is Star Wars. Um, although we did crap on Boba Fett for uh, a good uh, couple weeks, uh, not, not too long ago as well. About two-thirds of the show, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the only thirds we didn't uh, crap on were the Mando uh, moments. So That's right. And you can, of course, leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. Much appreciated. And you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in. Very much appreciating the Aichaya reference. Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P as in Pring, comma, T. Um, O-R- <laughs> T-O-N. The best part of that is that there's actually a T in your handle that you could have used for yep. Tepring, but you yep. went the torturous route. I approve. Oh, I'm even dumber than you think. I said comma. <laughs> it's actually an apostrophe. So. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.